Heavenly Father, it is an awesome, 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 awesome thing that we can sing, O night divine, because you in your great mercy determined to infiltrate the darkness of our sin, the darkness of the fallen world with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the birth of your son. You came into this world. You didn't leave it to us to figure out how to get this mess taken care of, Father. You, you came in, because that would have been impossible. You came in and you handled it through Jesus. And that's an awesome thing. And I pray that as we celebrate Christmas, as we look at the text today, that you would draw our hearts into the reality of what happened when Jesus Christ entered the world. Draw our hearts into the joy that is experienced only in the face of God. I pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Luke 1. We're going to start in verse 39. Luke 1, verse 39. And today we are beginning a month-long series in the book of Luke, and we're looking at something called the Magnificat. The Magnificat is uh, Mary's song of praise. Really, it is the first ever Christmas song, if you want to uh, get literal about it. It was written about nine months before Jesus was born, and it is an amazing and powerful piece of Scripture that I pray blesses, as much as it's blessed me over the past few weeks preparing for this, I pray that it blesses you guys. So to set the stage before we read this passage, Mary has, in just the verses preceding this, encountered the angel Gabriel. And he has told her, though she is not married, though she is not Though she's a virgin, he's told her she will conceive a son. And he will not be an ordinary son. He will be extraordinary. He will be called the Son of God. And he will reign on the throne of his father David. This is astounding news. For not only Mary, but for the entire people of Israel. This is staggering that the Most High God is after centuries upon centuries sending in the long-awaited Messiah into the world who will reign as king over God's people. This has been the hope of the Jewish people for literally millennia. You go back to the promise that was made to Adam and Eve. Thousands of years. And this is incredible because if you, I mean, just contextualize, Everything you know and love or hate about the United States of America has been around for less than 250 years. Two and a half centuries, and we are talking about thousands of years for them to pin their hope on this king. And God has decided to infiltrate the world not through a, a, a massive show of power or show of force. He could have done that. But he has chosen instead to go to a young, poor girl in the countryside of a very Roman-occupied part of the nation of Israel in a forsaken town called Nazareth. 
And he tells her, I'm going to bring the promised king for thousands of years through you. And what we're about to read is what happens immediately after. So verse 39 says this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said in response to this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And it says Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, for about three months and then returned to her home. And so after getting this news, this amazing news, Mary runs to Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth is her relative and she is actually the future mother of John the Baptist, which you will encounter if you go through the Advent readings. And Elizabeth, just upon hearing Mary's approach, only upon hearing her approach, is filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And she cries out in this indwelling of God's Spirit, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then she she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. She's incredulous. She can't believe that this is happening. And she knows that in this moment, Mary is the mother of the long-awaited Messiah, who she simply refers to as my Lord, my master. She knows who Jesus is even before he's born. This is the King of Israel. This is the Messiah, the Christ sent from God to rescue his people. And Elizabeth is stunned by the work of God, which leads to Mary's song. Now, what I want to do today is I want to explore just the first few lines, the first sentence of this song. We're going to progressively move through this song throughout the course of this month, all five weeks, and I want to look at just the first sentence. And this is it, Luke 1, 46 through 47. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit 
rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servants. So, there are, in this sentence, three distinct statements, three distinct parts. And the first is this. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord's. In, in other words, he, she's saying, my soul magnifies or exalts or glorifies the Lord, the God most high. I am lifting him up. And she's not doing it just superficially. She is doing this from the deepest part of her being, her soul. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, which basically means that everything in her, every single molecule in her is exalting and praising in God this moment. But notice, she is not content to leave it there. In her mind, this statement, though it is glorious and magnificent, is not complete. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and that's missing something critical. And what that is, is the next line. She says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior rejoices in God. So not only is Mary magnifying the Lord, but she is rejoicing in him. Now why add that part? Isn't it just sufficient for her to say, I'm magnifying in the Lord? And it isn't for Mary. That's why she puts it in here. She adds it because she wants to make it clear this is not an outward act alone. My magnifying of him is not an outward act alone. There is a powerful, moving feeling of joy inside of her that is causing her to magnify the Lord. And this is really a critical fact about all worship, all true worship that we need to see. It's really the focus of our time today. The statement that she magnifies the Lord is meaningless to Mary if it does not arise from joy in God. It is meaningless, which is why these two things are side by side. She wants to be very clear about this. She didn't muster up this worship. She didn't have to fake it. This is arising from a furnace of joy inside her heart for the living God. In other words, it is only because her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, that the magnification of the Lord by her soul is real and sincere and true. Or if I were to put it more plainly, it is not true worship of God if there is no joy in God. Singing a song to God while finding him boring is no more worship than paying a compliment to someone that you don't mean. Or telling your spouse or a significant other that you love them when you don't. It is meaningless if the joy is not there. If there is no joy in God, there is no true worship. And true worship is intrinsically connected to joy in the object that is being worshipped. In fact, joy is the source of every kind of worship or praise that you can possibly give. There is, there is no such thing as begrudging worship if it's true worship. There is no such thing as mechanical worship. If it's, those are oxymorons. If it is true worship, it is welling up from 
joy in the object of worship, in this case, God. And we see this throughout the Bible. Um, For example, Matthew 15. Jesus says this of the Pharisees referring to how they, or God's statement about them in Isaiah. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain. Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah here to the Pharisees, to the scribes, about what God thinks about their worship. And it's clear that they're doing something on the outside. They're doing something physical on the outside. Yet, shockingly, Jesus says that worship is vain. You might be tithing. You might be reading the Torah. You might be singing these songs. That's all on the outside. But what's in your heart isn't a love for me. It isn't a joy for me. It isn't a delight in me. Your heart is a million miles away from me. And Jesus is basically saying in this statement to the Pharisees, the throne of your heart reveals whether or not this is real worship or whether or not this is vain worship. And we even have it in the book of Amos. It is even more poignant. I want you to listen to chapter 5, verse 21. This is God talking to the people of Israel. He says to them, I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. This is a heavy indictment to hear from God. The people of Israel who were neglecting justice, they were neglecting what they should have been doing, revealed that despite their frequent expressions of religion, their hearts were miles away from where God was. And God's response to this is hatred. Think about that. I mean, some of our homes... I know how parents operate here. Some of our homes, hate is a bad word. I'm not saying it's not strong. It is strong. It's a strong word. God chooses to use that word here to describe his feelings for their worship. He hates and despises vain worship. There is a kind of outward expression that God despises, which should be for us sobering as worshipers of God, And it should tell us something really significantly important. That worship, at its core, is not singing ultimately. At its heart, worship is something that happens before the song even begins. Before the song even hits the tongue of a human being, worship is happening. The essence of worship is an overwhelming, overpowering joy in something that surges up in the soul of the singer before she or he even utters a single note. That's true worship. And this is what we see in the Magnificat. Mary is magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God because what these two things are are actually just two different views on the same 
reality, the same event. And C.S. Lewis saw this aspect of worship very clearly when he was grappling with the question, question that we might have grappled, you guys may have grappled before. The question is, why is it exactly that God commands for us to praise him so much in this book? If someone did that to us, demanded that we praise them, we would think that they were crazy. Why does he do that in this book? He commands, especially in the Psalms, that was what C.S. Lewis was grappling with. His conclusion is very helpful, and I want to read his argument. And it's going to help us not only understand the Magnificat, this statement in the Magnificat, but it will help us understand our own worship. This is what Lewis says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I had thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be the inner health made audible. That is profound. He says praise almost seems to be a person's inner health, the inner reality made audible, made visible. The essence of worship and praise isn't a song. It's not root words, not at its, at its root. It is an inner joy that is suddenly put on display, suddenly made visible, suddenly made audible. And this is what God is after. This is what God is seeking not just honoring him with our lips, but hearts that delight in him. So I want to listen now one more time to another statement by Lewis as he connects joy and worship and see how he sees them as one reality. Look at this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Then he says, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. 
Lewis says, to fully enjoy is to glorify. These are the same thing. In fact, praise, he says, not merely expresses our enjoyment, but praise completes our enjoyment. It is incomplete. He calls it the appointed consummation. I love that phrase. That's what praise is. This is what joy inside the heart of a human being looks like, what it sounds like. It sounds like praise, and it must be expressed for it to be completed. You cannot experience joy fully in this world. You can't experience it fully unless it is, until it is released from your heart to share with others. You guys know this to be true. You know this to be true. You saw something, and you got to talk about it. You were moved by something, and you need to share it. This is a reality we are all intimately familiar with, and this reality is at the center of what it means to worship. And it is exactly what Mary's doing. She is expressing in this Magnificat a deep, overwhelming joy in God. And it is resulting in her saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, magnifies him. And so if I'm real with you at this point, this is really convicting to me. And I imagine for some of you it might be convicting as well because when we consider this personally, we probably start to recognize how often it is that we show up on a Sunday or any day and we just start moving our mouths and singing songs. It may have happened to you this morning and it's just not ultimately arriving, arising from a joy. It's just a mechanical expression, paint by numbers experience. It's a duty It's an obligation, just what you do on Sundays. You get here, you get into a a building, you start singing songs, that's what happens, and there's no joy. That's a tragedy. But what's more of a tragedy is that some of us may be fine with that arrangement. Some of us may be okay with just doing this. But if I were to guess for most of you, if you've ever even just had a glimpse of the beauty and worth of God, even a split second of seeing him for who he is, you are not fine with that arrangement at all and you desperately want to taste joy in your worship. You want to experience deep-seated joy in your worship and that rises forth as praise. And so the question is, what do we do? How does this happen? I want that joy. Well, praise be to God, Mary's song will provide us with some help here. She's going to point us to the source of her joy. Let's look at Luke 146 again. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why, Mary? Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Do you see it? Mary is magnifying God, magnifying the Lord. She's, she's rejoicing in God her Savior, which is true, sincere, heartfelt worship that is wrought from joy in the depths of her soul. And it comes from somewhere. She didn't just create this. This isn't manufactured by her. Verse 47 says... It comes from God. That's what the word for means in this passage. Mary is connecting the act of her worship 
with the source of her worship. It says, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Which tells us that God did this. The joy in her heart came from an act of God in her soul. It says God looked and through his looking, her joy seems to erupt into worship. Now, at this point, some folks might be saying, Jeremy, you are overthinking this big time. Mary's just glad that she brought the Messiah into the world through her. That God brought the Messiah through, that he picked Mary and that that's how he's going to bring the long-awaited Christ into the world. And, and all, he's, all she's saying there is that's what it means for her to be looked upon by God for him to bring Christ into the world through her. Her joy is only connected in his looking upon her, the news that he's given her. That's all that this is talking about. And I, I would be, on, if I'm honest with you, I would agree with most of that. I would say that this news is huge. It's the centerpiece of what she's celebrating. But I would contend that the connection between God looking upon someone and them experiencing joy is actually less abstract than that argument would have you believe. There's something tangible here. There's something real that's going on in this song. And it is literally everywhere in the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms. I want you to listen to how Scripture uses this language. I'm going to rattle off some passages and listen to the connections to this specific part of the Magnificat. Psalm 4-6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Psalm 31.16, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Psalm 67.1-2, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Psalm 80.19, and this is actually throughout Psalm 80, restore us, O Lord, God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalm 119, 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. And then Numbers 6, you guys would know this one, probably some of you by heart. It's the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The point of these passages is that the idea of God looking on someone and providing them with the blessing of mercy or grace or salvation or love is not simply a figure of speech. It's not simply a way of talking about things. It is a vivid reality that says the source of our joy in God arises from the shining of his countenance upon us. That's where our joy comes from. We don't drum it up. We don't manufacture it. We don't just try to fake it until it's real. We can't. That can't happen. It will never be real. God must break into our lives and shine the light of his face on us 
for us to experience this joy. And our question really today is how in the world does that happen? How, what should we pray for? What should we pursue? What should we do? If we can't cause it ultimately because it comes from the face of God, does that mean there is nothing we can do? Nothing at all we can bring to the table. Well, in the passage that we're reading, Mary tells us what God looked upon. Jacob, if you can bring it back up, Luke 146. Let's look at the text again. It says that he looked on the humblest state of his servants. So note this. God is not, while looking down at Mary, looking down at arrogance. He's not looking down at pride. He's not looking down at wealth or opulence or someone who is content with what they can get out of the world. He is looking down on the humble estate of his servant. The meaning of this phrase, humble estate, in the Greek literally means humiliation abasement. It's the word taponosis. And it is an expression of deep and utter lack. She doesn't have anything to bring to God. She has nothing to bring to God. In other words, she is saying, God is looking down upon me in my humiliation. He is looking down upon me in my abasement. I have nothing to bring to him. The only ingredient Mary brings to the table in God looking upon her is her need. Doesn't have anything. She only has her poverty to show to God. I don't have anything to bring to you, God. Only my humble estate. I have nothing to, to bring to God. And stunningly, Mary's humiliation, her humble estate is exactly what God is looking for. That is precisely what he wants to shine down into. In other words, if you've got it all figured out, if you know how to live your life on your own, if you um, know how to pursue everything in this world on your own and get everything for yourself, God's not interested in shining down into that at all. God is looking for people who will call on him as their only hope in the world. Their only hope. Listen to Isaiah 66 here. Just the first few verses. And listen to the language the prophet uses as he speaks for God. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. God's saying who he's going to look to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is where God looks. This is where God shines his face. Someone who is humble and contrite in spirit. God is telling us here, I am looking for humble people, broken people, contrite people. And what the Magnificat's opening lines tell us is that not only is joy not optional in worship, True worship must proceed from joy, but also that our joy springs up not from our own confidence, not from our own ability, but from a recognition of our own helplessness before God in our utter and complete reliance on him. 
we need to see like Mary the immense delta between our worth and the worth of the living God. We need to feel that inside our souls. And it is impossible for proud people to feel that. It is impossible. They just can't. The worth of God is meaningless for them, which is something Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. I don't know if you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a proud king of Babylon who was uttering all these blasphemies about his own kingdom, and God, in his mercy, breaks him. He brings him very low and breaks his pride by turning him into a mindless animal. Once that season is done and his reason returns, I want us to listen to his adjusted assessment of not only his worth and the worth of his kingdom, but of all human existence. Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, and none can say to him, question him, lift their fists towards him, demanding, what have you done? None, Nebuchadnezzar says. And what this passage means is that in order for us to rightly know God, our self-determination, our self-reliance needs to be brought completely to nothing. We need to recognize that his worth is infinitely greater than ours and that we are desperately in need of him to work in us. And in his great mercy, God will bring us low. Out of his great love, he will bring us low. And in that place of humility where we are starting to see the immense emptiness we have apart from God and our desperate need for him, this is exactly where we find Mary magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God. Think about what she's saying. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My Savior. God, my Savior. Why say that? He didn't save her. He gave her probably the heaviest news you could ever receive from God. I'm going to bring my son into the world through you. Why is she saying, my Savior? Because God is saving her in the act of looking upon her. You see, the light of God's face as the source of her joy means that her salvation isn't just floating over here and God applies it by looking at her. His looking upon her is her salvation. That is her joy. God's love and his grace and his, uh, his mercy aren't great just because they give her nice things. It's because they bring her face to face with the living God. And there is literally nothing greater in the universe than that. It's not an exaggeration for me to say the reason human beings exist, the reason you exist, and the reason I exist is so that we would look at him 
so that we'd see him. That's why we are here. And in the gaze of the face of the one who made us, the one for whom we were made, we are saved. Salvation isn't just something we get from God. Salvation is getting God, is getting him. He's our salvation because everything else in this world is exponentially less valuable, beautiful, and worthy than God. What I want to do now is I want to look at Psalm 27 and I want to see how David does what Mary's doing. How does David pursue it? Does he sit on his hands and say, God zap me with the joy? Or does he actually do something? Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, God, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. Do you hear the desperation in his voice? He is completely discontent with any kind of worship that would be mechanical, a show, a farce. He wants to see God more than anything else in this world. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face will I seek. And what this shows us, what you know firsthand, is that seeking the face of God in this life, seeking joy in God in this life, will always be a fight. It is an embattled situation in this life. It will be a brutal fight. And like David, we will always have to fight to seek the face of God. This is the life of, of a believer. This is what it means. This is what faith is. It is a fight to see the glory of God. And David is crying out to God here. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. You have a right to be angry with me. I've dishonored you. Don't turn away from me. Don't turn away from me. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, God. You are all I have. I don't have anything but you. And for David and for Mary, the salvation that he experiences when the glory of God shines on him as God turns to look at his soul is through one man, Mary's son, Jesus Christ. Think about this. Mary's son, his birth is the, is the thing that ignites her worship in God in the Magnificat. Yet her son's death will be the very means by which God saves her and she can worship. Is that not paradoxical? Her joy in God is purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ before he's even born. It's flowing to her from that event that's going to happen and she's able to enjoy God. In order for God to freely give us this mercy, his gracious looking down upon us, something has to happen. Something astronomical in significance. In order for God to save us in the middle of our 
humility, humiliation, our unworthiness, an unworthiness that is deserved because of our creaturely sin, because of our rebellion against God, our broken fallen nature, God needed to send his son. Not only across an infinite chasm between his glory and our lack of glory, not only across that, but Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, the son of God, needed to experience the humiliation that we've been talking about. He needed to experience it firsthand. And not only in taking the form of a human, a servant, but he needed to be brutally executed and tortured. He needed to die. No one in the history of mankind has ever experienced more humiliation than Jesus. No one, period. He has experienced the worst of it. And in order for God to look upon us with his grace and his love and his blessing and his salvation, he needed to turn his gaze away from his son to do that. While his son was paying for every sin, every single sin, every act of indifference, every lack of joy that we would ever experience. He needed to turn his gaze away from his son as his wrath is being poured out on him. Think about this. Mary's son will have the face. This is going to happen 33 years down the road from the Magnificats being sung. Mary's son is going to have the face of his own father who has delighted in his son for all eternity, perfectly, unbroken, suddenly torn away. Remember David's words? He said, God, hide not your face from me. Forsake me not, he says. Now I want you to fast forward a thousand years and listen to Jesus' words on the cross in Mark 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to look away from his son to shine the light of his countenance on you. God desires your joy in him more than you can possibly comprehend. You cannot even begin to comprehend how much he wants you to experience joy. Not in you pursuing things in this world, not in your own achievements, not in your own glory or your own stuff. All of that is temporary and trivial. It is meaningless at the end of the day. God is pursuing your joy in him. That's why the cross existed. He wants you to have invincible, unbreaking joy in him as, his, as your savior. And we will struggle in this life to sing for joy. We will, we will fight this fight of pursuing joy in God and, and forcing out any effort to do this mechanically or just do it because it's what we're doing. But let me just make a promise to you. One day, if your faith is in him, one day you will see him face to face. God. 
You're going to see him. And he's going to look into the deepest part of your being and you will experience a joy that will put in your heart and in your mouth singing that will never end. A kind of joy that will never cease to push out of your throat in your heart singing. You won't be able to stop. Singing in heaven isn't something you do. Singing in heaven is something you can't help but do. You can't. So we're about to worship here and sing songs about the Savior coming in the world, sing songs for worshiping who he is and what he's done in the cross. And what I would like us to do as we worship and as we take communion is to consider the elements. Consider what Jesus was purchasing for you with his body and with his blood. He is purchasing your joy. He wants you to be happy in him. He wants you to be filled with joy in him. That's what he paid for with his blood. And as we take communion, if your faith is in him, you are invited to participate. Take those elements and realize every ounce of joy you have in God came through the cross of Jesus Christ. He bought it for you, though we do not deserve a single ounce of it. He bought it for us. And then what I would like you to do is as we worship today, and really as you go into this next week and through this whole month of us looking at the Magnificat, I would ask that you have a conversation with God, especially if you feel the weight of what we've been talking about today, and that you plead with him. I don't want a cold heart anymore. I don't want hollow worship anymore. I don't want this to be just what I do. I want to feel this. Shine your face down upon me. Plead with him for that. Do what David said. Spend your life doing what David said. And do it every single day. Say to God, you have said to me, seek your face. And there's nothing I want more in the world. My heart, Father, says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. May that be our prayer. That needs to be the foundation of every prayer. Because every prayer should lead us into a deeper joy in God. Every answer to every prayer isn't just for the answer. It's for the glory of God and for our enjoyment of him for being God. Let's pray. What a wild thing, Father, for us to, to unpack here at the front end of Mary's Magnificat. The relationship between worship and joy. Between your glory and our delight. You made us to be happy. You made us to be filled with joy. not primarily in anything in this world, but primarily in you, ultimately in you, Father. And as we contemplate the glory of Jesus Christ infiltrating the darkness of our humanity, the darkness of the world, 
in this season, Father, may we recognize that joy is what you were pursuing. Our joy in you, in Jesus Christ. Father, don't, don't let us do this mechanically. If we're going to do this mechanically, we need to go home. We're talking to the creator of the universe. Come and do a work in our hearts. Shine the light of your countenance on our souls. And may every single person in this room, every single person who's part of the Risen Hope family, may we feel that joy in our soul as we gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, in prayer, any time we give to you, Father God pray that you would do this. I know that you can do this, and I believe that you will, Father. I trust in you doing this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.